This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined this week by Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. And before we go any further, a big thank you to Phoebe Squared for the past three hours on Maps. Phoebe will be back on Triple R next Monday at 4pm. Uh, I should actually say at the t- very top of the show today, of course, is Academy Awards Day. It's Oscars Day. Uh, we won't be mentioning it or covering it at all. That's because we're aware that many of our listeners are probably waiting for the telecast tonight and don't want spoilers. And we're also aware we've probably got a large selection of listeners who just aren't that interested. So to avoid any issues, we're not going to cover it. And announcers who aren't that interested either. Yeah. I, I actually love watching the ceremony and I've done that and enjoyed it very much. But um, that's all I'm going to say on the matter. What are uh, the Oscars? I'll stop it. You're, you're, too, you're too hip. <laughs> On tonight's show, we're going to take a look at T2 Train Spotting, the sequel to the 1996 film Train Spotting, as well as Aquarius, a new drama from Brazil. But first, Camera Person. Now, this is a difficult to classify film, but I've read it described as an autobiographical collage documentary, which I don't think is too bad. It's a film by documentary cinematographer and camera operator Kirsten Johnston and it, contained, and it consists of clips and outtakes from the various films she's worked on along with some personal home movie footage. There's no narration, just some on-screen text to tell us what parts of the world the footage came from and occasionally a few notes about the context of the footage being shown. The end result is a film that muses on the role of the documentarian and the challenges of maintaining objectivity as well as a very personal film about how to live with tragedy and horror, whether experiencing it directly or witnessing it. Cerise, I know you were really taken by this film. I, I was, but I have hiccups, so Alex. <laughs> I'll, uh, you let me know when your hiccups yeah. have gone. And I, I will. Th- let the joy continue. If there's any doubt this is live, I hope it's gone now. Yeah. Cerise's hiccups. Alex, what did you I, make look, of the camera I, sh- I share Cerise's uh, hiccups. hiccups and <laughs> her hiccupy, hiccupy, enth- <laughs> hiccupy enthusiasm. Mm. Um, this, is, this is one of those magic films that I get to say I've never seen anything like it and nothing gives me more of a buzz than being able to talk about a film using those particular words. Um, I, like you said, Thomas, the word um, kind of collage, diary turns up a lot. I almost think of this film, it's so personal And it really emphasises that without being indulgent. It almost feels like a moving photo album um, because it it travels through different jobs that she went to. So filming, you know, she worked on the Derrida documentary, um, documentary in inverted commas, of course, because it's Derrida. There's my little little joke there. Anyway, um, Fahrenheit 9-11, Citizen Four. She's worked on an extraordinary number of films. um, But working on these films have been part of her life. And I love how she incorporates these short, seemingly at times contextless moments uh, next to personal footage. So so uh, footage of, of her two children. She has twins uh, of her mother um, and and her family. This this idea of a, her work and her personal life kind of forming this, this beautiful documentary memory poem almost. It's just extraordinary. It's just a beautiful movie. Some of the, the films it sort of reminded me of, but again, I'm going to agree with you, Alex, and say it, it, it does feel like quite a singular work, but it reminded me a little bit of films like Senna and Amy in, in the sense that it's just the footage we are seeing without 
shots of talking heads explaining it all together. But it also reminded me of very personal documentary essay type films, like Heart of a Dog, yep, for instance. Absolutely. And then also Vim Vendor's um, The Salt of the Earth. I thought about which, that yeah, which, as well. You know, the film that moved me to tears and when I reviewed it on the break fast as I could hardly talk about it. Yep. Mainly because some of the themes she deals with is this thing about how do you, how do you cope with filming tragedy and, and, and heartbreak and horror and then she includes some of stuff happening within her own family as well in a way that's completely sincere and um very moving and i think that if if she yeah. was more overt in providing a narrative it would actually come across as a little a little forced and a little corny yeah. there's something about her and i think the title of the film camera person is so evocative of what she's actually doing in this film in that she's making herself present and in so many of these clips, uh, there's an extraordinary moment where she's talking to a young woman who's about to have a pregnancy terminated and you can hear her talking to this young woman from behind the camera and it's, it's, it will stay with me. Mm. She's obviously included this sequence in the film because it stayed with her and it, it feels like one of my memories now. It's in my memory bank and there's so many moments in this film that I've made that connection with. So it's all about, you know, in a kind of documentary film studies context it's about you know the presence of the camera person you know it's it's not just raw it's not raw verite footage that's kind of captured by robot it's a person there who is feeling and engaging and and it's this film in a way is about putting her in that but at the same time it balances that beautifully with it putting that footage into her story well the scene that uh, sort of towards the end of the film that i realized kind of gives you a clue as to what this film is all about happens very early when we see some of the derrida documentary and there's a scene she's filming him and obviously an outtake she's included and she trips over the curb or something and he makes a joke about oh this is what the camera person does they see the whole world around them but they forget to look around their own immediate uh surroundings and, and they trip up and it's it's a nice little joke and it's a nice little philosophical joke and derrida's quite lovely in this film he's sort of aware about kind how goofy almost he's quite goofy yeah. in it. But that's what this is about, a person who is so aware of the rest of the world now looking in at her own life as well in the context of these experiences. And um, the moment that really drove home to me of her being aware of her subjectivity is that sequence, I think it's during some of the footage she took in... Uh, where is it? Is it Serbia or... Um, Bosnia. The Bosnian. Bosnia. Bosnia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The two boys playing with the axe. And it's these two brothers, one very, very little and an older one who's chopping wood right near his little brother and she's gasping and starting to say, oh, God, no, oh, God, no. And you're there watching it, feeling her absolute gut terror as to what on earth is going to happen because these boys are too little to be playing with the axe and it's a very real moment. The, the footage in Bosnia, I think, really punctuates this film. I think it's really privileged as... Uh, I think the, the footage in Bosnia and also the, the footage of her mother, I think, are the real mm. kind of structural centrepieces of this film. But the moment that really got me in that um, kind of interplay between her subject and her subjectivity uh, was when she was spending time with a midwife in Nigeria who just gave birth to twins. Yeah, and that kind of cuts God. between her own own twins and this this interplay. It's like, of course, she can't make that separation. How are you feeling, Cerise? I think... I- think they're gone. It could be cute. Yeah, it could be be very humorous yet for all concerned. The other key moment uh, or passage in this film for me, again, in Bosnia, there are a couple of people she's talking to who have been taking testimony from uh, Mm. countless people uh, about war crimes, especially of a sexually violent nature. and documenting these. And, and there's a, a woman there who 
expressly raises the issue of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and, and who who actually helps people like her, she who is uh, bearing witness to all of this um, atrocity that has been perpetrated. Uh, and in turn, I think we're very much invited to wonder about our, uh, our documentarist here. She has herself borne witness to any number of uh, really horrific acts and and um i mean that that where she visits those folks about the was his name james bird the, the james bird jr yeah, james the james bird, bird jr, jr. Mm. trial mm. about um uh, i think a youngish black man who was dragged to his death behind uh, i guess some sort of utility type vehicle or something like that and you know it's just um we we the, the film in those moments probes what can be shown what should be shown the whole ethical um, issues surrounding the a documentarist's role, but also the the effect that investigating these sort of crimes can have, and also the the role of the camera person in being a part of that investigation, and in turn, what how, how they might be affected. And I think this 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 film offers actually so much up to mm. to process by the end of it, uh, and perhaps even to to rewatch to try to to wrap your head around some of these really curly. Uh, ethical conundra um, and as well as just how much can you yourself tolerate we, we see the nightly news if, assuming we tune in and especially not for the Oscars and it's, it's a horror show night after night and um, do we become desensitised or in fact we just traumatised uh, what what is what's symptomatic of one that's different to the other in a way if you if, is it better to be desensitized or is it in fact better to take all that on and then perhaps need counseling i think i totally agree i think that she uh kristen johnson that the camera person in question there's there's just this remarkable skill that she has between balancing artistry and humanity that i think that if she was to if it if it was a voiceover it just would collapse. It just wouldn't pull off the the impact that she does just with these little clips, just little, almost like little YouTube clips just stuck together um, mm. in seemingly random order. I mean, we could, there's so many little moments that we can bring up. The one that really struck me was uh, an interview with a filmmaker called Kathy uh, Le- Lecter. I think her name is Kathy Lecter, who's was making a film about her mother's suicide. Mm. Oh, God, yes. And yes. It's, um, it is, you're watching it and it's an extraordinarily emotional difficult scene that you're watching there's just this real human drama and I know that's a really kind of hackneyed phrase but you're really watching something quite unlike anything else unfold before you because you're seeing that woman kind of fall apart have a, just but also very aware breakdown. that she's being filmed because mm-hmm. she's a filmmaker herself and then and yeah. then you have that awareness of 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 Johnson herself choosing to put this particular clip at this particular place uh, the ordering of, of the material in this film the more that I think about it it's it's really it is poetry it's mm. really poetic um, and, and it's used to great effect I think to make these points but these really deep the, critical points the form of this film I think is perfect like I, I think the, the the artistic decision she's made which includes not doing narration and just the way the film is edited the way she uses quick editing in, in some sequences for quick contrast and the way she allows other scenes to play out fully it, it, it's just perfect there are so many really smart empathetic choices made here yeah, well, it's also now and again she actually deviates from the pattern she sets up. Uh, the the process throughout much of it is uh, a, a little um, chapter heading, let's say, and then some footage then fade to black, next chapter. But then there are times where she just runs uh, deliberate juxtapositions of um, footage from quite disparate uh, events that she has covered 
and they're really telling. And and you know, you, you orient yourself with them because you've already seen snippets of these earlier, so you do have a sense that actually what you're meant to be paying attention to here is that there are these thematic linkages and and many of them are grim, frankly, but I marvel too at how she finds the good in humans and um, even when perhaps some of them are, are presenting themselves in a, in a manner whereby you know that um, she's gently prompting people to, to come out of themselves and especially this gorgeous elderly woman in Bosnia oh, who's beautiful. in yeah. a wonderful form of denial about what's been going on. Or she's terrified yeah, yeah, to yeah. say anything. Or both. I, or think. Both. I think she's yeah. reached yeah. the point where she believes yeah. what she's saying. Yeah. And she's just rolling camera the whole time, much as we see lots of shots in this that would never have gone to air in an actual documentary. So we're always given pause to think, okay, so as a filmmaker, she's always got the camera rolling. She couldn't intervene or she could uh, call cut and then have a little chat with someone and say oh, is this okay is this you know do, do you want to talk about this or is this really not but no instead she's she's kept this rolling and documented her own I think uh, her own forays into actually ethically slightly murky territory and that's I think so fascinating about this this is um it's such a complex film. It is. What I actually—that's the scene I realised that she's a genius. Um, yeah. that, that that interview with that elderly woman who was so—and it, it's all being done through translators as well. And this woman is so reluctant to talk about the political situation. And then there's a moment where Johnson has the revelation and starts talking to the woman about her dress sense and mm. her, her fashion mm. and, and realises suddenly this woman takes pride in her appearance and the woman lights up and she doesn't mm. give her any insight into the politics but we suddenly see the human and that was a really special moment that she caught on camera um, along with the sneezing at the start of the film. There's a beautiful <laughs> shot of an empty highway and first there's a lightning bolt that comes down and she gasps because she caught this incredible thing and then she sneezes and yeah. the camera shakes and that's the moment I fell in love with her. So I fell in love with her right at the start and then at the end of the film I realised this is a genius filmmaker. I also have to wonder why she wasn't really a household name beforehand. When you see that body of work, we just think, well, why don't we know more about cinematographers as a rule? Yeah, we just don't, do we? No, we don't. Well, we make an effort to mention them here on this show as much as we can, especially, Alex, you're really good at that. But I think we're just still stuck in this auteur thing, aren't we, where it's all about directors and maybe writers. I think yep. we, I mean, we live in a culture that privileges the, the single author yeah. or the single artist, not just in cinema but across the board, and I think that there's really major fallout um, in terms just, just traditionally in the way that women have historically practised in a more collaborative way, but that is another rant for another day. Oh, I don't know. I, just, I just don't really want to let go of it love, quite so easily. Love, so. love yeah. me a camera person. I know yeah. we're not a recommendation show, but boy, oh boy, I can't think of anyone that I wouldn't tell this is an essential film to see. And it's already out in the Criterion Collection, I might add, as well. They know really? That, yeah, yeah. They know Criterion have released this they, already? They already have. Damn. Yeah, with a whole bunch of... Uh, um, ancillary material. But see it big. See but it do, big if you do can. go see it in a cinema. Well, it's absolutely. screening in Melbourne here at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Go and see Acme, it big. Our good friends there who uh, do excellent programming all year round. I've just been drinking with them, so I'm going to say that. But, but I, I, I actually. I actually <laughs> and I haven't, but they nonetheless do excellent programming all year round. You have sympathetic hiccups. Yeah. I actually do sincerely believe yeah. that as well. Mm. Camera person, it's, it's screening at the moment at Acme. You're listening to Thomas Alexson Cerise here on Plato's Cave on 3 Triple R. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. 
You're listening to Plato's Cave. Uh, we, we, well, it's always sad when people important to us in the film industry pass away, and there's been a couple since the show has show last air last Monday. So I'm going to hand over to you, Cerise, to, to say a few words about one of the two people we want to tip our hat to tonight. And as I fear, my hiccups are only a hiccup away, Alex. Seijin Suzuki, the extraordinary Japanese filmmaker. He was not young. He did live a full life. 93 he made it to. And as we as we have uh, discussed, the we don't know whether he was into cricket, but that is a good innings. Very good. And he did not stop making films. He didn't really start making money, as, as he famously is quoted. sense. No. <laughs> sense and money he wasn't big on, but the guy loved making movies. And he made some of my absolute favourites. Some of these are available on the aforementioned Criterion collection, so if he is new to you, we urge you to run out and see Branded to Kill, Tokyo Drifter, Story of a Prostitute, Pistol Opera, Underworld Beauty, and one of my favourites, Capone Cries a Lot. If you've never heard of him, you are in for a delight. Yeah, a lot of uh, Western genres put through some sort of bizarre Japanese pop culture, pop art blender, and they come out in a way which so clearly influenced Quentin Tarantino and, and many others. Um, Jim Jarmusch was mourning his loss yeah, on twi- the Twitters. Yeah, yeah, a lot of film. He's a, he's a filmmaker's filmmaker. I yeah, it's a bit of a cliche. A but great stylist, and his films were just impossibly cool. Mm. Yeah. So, all right, peace, Asian Suzuki. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. T2 Train Spotting is the somewhat unlikely sequel to the highly influential and popular 1996 film Train Spotting about a group of young men caught up in the Edinburgh harrowing scene. Drawing material from the original 1993 novel by Irvin Welsh plus his 2002 novel Porno, this new film is once more directed by Danny Boyle and written by John Hodge and brings the four main characters back together 20 years after Mark Renton, played again by Ewan McGregor, ripped them all off and vanished from their lives. So Daniel Murphy, a.k.a. Spud, played by Ewan Bremer, is still battling addiction. Simon Williamson, a.k.a. Sick Boy, played by Johnny Lee Miller, is now a low-level hustler who wants to open a brothel. And Francis Begbie, played by Robert Carlyle, is now in jail and as psychotic as ever. The film relies heavily on evoking a deep nostalgia for the original film while thematically being very disdainful towards these now middle-aged men who are still clutching on to the past. I suppose I might just reveal my deck of cards right now, Cerise. You and I have both seen this. We went Mm -hmm. separately. I um, was utterly blown away by this film. I was choking back the tears at certain scenes in this because it does tap into the the kind of feeling I had when that original film came out in such a powerful way. I mean, I feel like this was specifically made for people about my age. You saw this film in their early 20s and it was a revelation at the time. And it was a big deal at the time. It was so associated with Britpop. The original soundtrack album was, you know, one of the great albums of of, of the era. And, um, and as much as this film has this recurring theme about how pathetic it is to constantly hang on to the past and relive former glories, it's a film that very, yeah very heavily is evoking a sense of nostalgia. You know, there's, there's a music from the original film appears in remixes. There's lots of flashbacks to the original film. Uh, and yet it somehow really works. It's quite a sincere, mature film, in my opinion. I'm dying to know what you think. Really? I am, because mm. I'm, just, I'm just in gush mode. You so are. I, I'm, I'm wanting to hear from somebody who can bring a bit more critical distance to it. Just to bring you down a bit. <laughs> yeah, it didn't knock me off my euphoric pedestal. Yeah, I didn't... 
I didn't get a euphoric kick out of this film, but I was very pleasantly uh, engaged by it and enjoyed its echoes of uh, yesteryear. Can you remind me what year was the original? 96. It was 96. So we're talking 21 21 years, years actually. Hands up up if you feel old. Yeah, My goodness me. Yeah. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember, you know, these guys were so young and vibrant in that first film and they were unknowns in that first film and now, you know... Well, the, the film, the, you know, the film starts, the, the original film starts with that great shot of them running down the street. This starts with Ewan McGregor on a treadmill running along. Yeah. Yeah, and even that doesn't go... And doesn't, exactly. doesn't go well. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think actually the moments of comedy in this film that don't reference the past one are, are really splendid. There's this fabulous business in a, a pub about um, the whole 1690-something of something where the Catholics were evidently appalling and conquered by a Protestant group of Scots. I can only presume I don't know that history so well. I, I miss the history, yeah. yeah. They, get, they give it to you in the film, but I forgot you, you to take do. notes. But that, that whole business is, is fabulous and as a self-contained bit of... Uh, just comedy is, is splendid stuff. Um, a lot of the rest of the film, though, really is purely for the benefit of people who saw the original. And I don't know that it would really have a tremendous amount of resonance for anyone who didn't. It's it's so referential and reverential to that that first film. And I get that because it was an important film. But uh, to, it's to the point where there are echoes in the soundtrack, even just little cues. I mean, it's, it's cleverly done, but it's it's kind of just overdone for me. I, I even reviving Lust for Life and getting a slight remix of that was was it really necessary? I mean, I I, I think certain things. Yes, you want to, um, especially when the remix is by the Prodigy. By the Prodigy, yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. But how nineties can you get? Ouch. Come yeah. on. <laughs> certain things. It's good to see that the whole Choose Life bit um, brought up to two thousand and seventeen. Yes. I, I love that sequence, and that, that worked really well, especially yeah. as it was somehow leached of the energy it had in the first one because it's over dinner in a restaurant. <laughs> and it's, um, and, but the despair in that scene is actually really uh, powerful. And then that, that in turn did remind me of actually how, how much I was impressed way back when by the, the, the sour parts of that first film. Yes, there was a great rush of energy and this fabulous soundtrack and it was a vital film, but actually it was harrowing too. Well, really, I, really harrowing. Did you get to rewatch the original? I film? didn't. I, I didn't. Yeah, I rewatched no. it last night. Yeah, and I was actually yeah, I was quite struck by how raw and ugly that first film is. I mean, it's funny, it's exciting, it's exhilarating, but it's also really confronting in parts and, and yeah. depressing. And it, you know, it's one of those films that the nineties were full of films like this where people were asking, "Well, is it really critiquing this scene or is it glorifying it?" And you watch them now and you think, "How could anybody possibly think this was glorifying this scene?" Yeah, absolutely. I mean. There's some really bleak stuff that happens in that original film. This new one doesn't have that same darkness or intensity, but again, that's kind of why I like it, because they're they're now middle-aged men who are sort of, many of them now in semi-respectable kind of walks of life, although it doesn't take them too long to slip back into old habits. No. I confess a a gap in my film literacy here in that I've not seen the original and it's That's a big gap, yeah. Yeah, it's just one of, you know, it was that zeitgeist thing and that I was in the group house world when this film came out and I just lived with people that were perhaps a little too attached to the lifestyle in the film um, and it just turned me off and and it's taken me a good two decades to be able to hear Lust for Life without flinching. (laughs) Like that was one of those like house party 
CDs that was just always on. Yeah. And so I just kept away from the film and it's just one of those weird little gaps that I guess that we all have. But listening to you guys talk about it, you almost sound more fond of the of the sequel. Is this one of those like Gremlins 2, Aliens, no. where the sequel's better than no, the original? No, it's, it's not. But no, but I, I think this is as good as a sequel could possibly have been and possibly better. I, it, it does some things I certainly didn't expect and w- especially weaves the first one into itself in a way that is not just in the, the I, I hesitate to say the fabric of the film because there's no fabric involved in the film really anymore, but <laughs> in, into the fabric of the narrative of the film. But then it actually gets very meta and it's quite... Too meta? Like Joss mm, Whedon meta? Almost actually, yeah. yeah I don't want to give too much away, but it... Um, it, it, it does disappear up its own asshole a little bit towards the end, doesn't it, Thomas? It's Winterbottom. Yeah, I, <laughs> leave Winterbottom out of this. Um, yeah, I, I see. It's it's weird. It does many things that I think would normally annoy me in mm. other films, but it, it just really worked in this one. Mm. And I think it's there is a lot of sincerity, and it's because it isn't doing a complete rehash. I mean, it, it really constantly reminds you that these are now fairly boring, tedious middle-aged men. There's that great scene where Renton and Simon both take speed or whatever, they take something, and they start to do it. It's just the most amazing example of cinematic mansplaining you'll ever see, where there's this younger woman who they've both got the hots for who's sitting there on a couch bored out of her mind, and they're both trying to tell her all about the football game and this amazing time back then and back then back then, and it's such a depressing image of guys my age who rant like that. I mean, it was sort of... It constantly reminds you that these are kind of pathetic, slightly sad old men, and, and, and that, I think, is what gave it an edge and didn't make it a complete wallowing in nostalgia. And then she gets to speak in her native Bulgarian, which of course neither of them can understand. So in effect, the subtitled uh, passages that she delivers are all jokes meant purely for the audience to have a laugh at how foolish those two are. And that's kind of fun. But I, I, I'm trying to cast my mind back to the first film and, and try to remember how much that film played to the audience outside of the world of the characters and that milieu. I, I don't remember if it yeah, did it so much, but perhaps there's a, a little. Of, no, there's a lot of narration that directly addresses the audience. Renton talks about how I'm going to become like you and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, right. There's a lot of very stylized first-person stuff that is very, you know, it's almost Brechtian in the way it takes you out of the world of the film quite overtly. Um, this film doesn't actually do so much of that, but there's an awful lot of stylistic nods. I mean, and again, watching the first one last night, I was quite staggered by how much this film both overtly and subtly referenced the original, but but again, how much it's also doing its own thing. I think it, it is its own film, but it so depends on you having seen the first one to make any sense of it. So that's always the question with the sequel, isn't it? Is it any good if it can't stand up on its own? Um, and, you know, this is a film I don't think could stand on its own, but I think as... Well, it's a companion, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like an extension. It's like, yeah, yeah. an um, add-on pack. If ooh, Is that a gaming reference? I, yeah. yeah, I'm getting... <laughs> Apparently so. Just settle uh, yeah. down. Yeah. You and... Talking about boring, boorish middle-aged men. Sorry. You and Bremner. What, yeah. what has you and Bremner been doing the last little while? I, he's so distinctive. As This is the character who plays poor old Spud. Yes, poor yeah. old Spud. He was in Black Hawk Down. He briefly oh, I never had roles in films like that. I saw him in a short film a few years ago. I, look, I'm not really too aware of what else he's done with his career. Yeah. Is, it, is it strange watching you and McGregor? Because I know that when this came out, I think I I knew him f- when the first one came out. I think I knew him from Shallow Grave. Shallow, Shallow Grave, Grave yeah. came out first, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. 
And he, you know, swept. And lipstick on your collar, which was a Dennis Potter series oh, he was in way and back in the day. And then before long, yeah. he was tackle out in almost anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, pillow was, book, the pillow velvet book, gold mine. It was just. Um, there was a lot of you and out there. Dong, dong shitty. It was. <laughs> <laughs> he was one of those guys who suddenly, like, if you McGregor's in that film, he's got his pants you're off. You're going to see yeah. some penis. Yeah. He went a bit Harvey Keitel he, along I was the way. About to say. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you and McGregor, I suppose, the only one we've really kept up to date with. I mean, Johnny Lee Miller kind of faded a little bit. Robert Carlyle, for a while, was was popular, and but I haven't seen in him the, in anything for ages. Hamish Macbeth. Oh, he did he go to TV? I was going to say, he did Ravenous, so he can actually oh, just stop making stuff because yeah. he's made the perfect I'm sure film. He did a but lot again, of that films. was ages ago. It was. That was late 90s, I think, yeah. Ravenous, the Antonia Bird film. So I'm, I'm especially just fixated on you and Browner because I find him yeah. so fascinating. He is Nosferatu. He he's is, the guy with oh, the head, yeah. isn't he? Yes, he yeah. absolutely is. And there are certain times where he's actually lit in this film with silhouettes to really bring that nostril up to look out. <laughs> and it's pretty rough. I mean, it's yes, he is distinctive looking. I, I hesitate to call anybody hard on the eyes. It's, 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 <laughs> his, his distinctive appearance is really played for, for laughs. And I guess he's in on the joke, but, gee, it's a bit cruel. I think he's better in this new film than he was in the original because in the original he's big. Yeah. <laughs> As in the acting, he's big and over the top. Oh, and it I is think, in this one too. Yeah, but oh, I think there's more nuance from him in this film. And he's film. so rubbery. Yeah. And he's gifted. He's a gifted physical comedian. I don't mm. know why we just haven't seen an awful lot more of him. But I guess he just doesn't quite have those leading man looks, even that with all that goofiness and comic skill, I guess he's just still a bit... Too much. Poor you and Bremer. Anyway, oh. it's great to see the gang back in this film and a lot of the other supporting cast make an appearance as well, which is which is nice. Uh, Kelly McDonald gets a yeah, you know, small scene. Nice, uh, you nice couldn't moment. have done much more with that character, but it's, I'm glad she's in there. We're talking about T2 train spotting. Uh, you're listening to Plato's Cave. Three, triple, ah. Oh. We are going to talk about Aquarius in a few moments, but first of all, the other, the, the other very sad death that got announced. I mean, this morning. This is the news I woke up to, which was actor Bill Paxton died at the age of sixty-one. Who sort of talking about how train spotting was a big part of my twenties? I mean, Bill Paxton was one of those actors who was just in so many iconic films. I saw as a teenager and a young person. I mean, you know that 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 ridiculous punk he played in the Terminator, and he's there in Weird Sci- Sci- Science. And, of course, in Aliens, where he says, game over, man, game over, that, that, which is my wife's ringtone. I mean, How does he actually say it, Thomas? <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to do a Bill pa- I'm not going to sully his reputation, <laughs> his, his memory. Well, I think you already have by not mentioning Twister. I'm building a Twister. <laughs> but, yeah, in the 90s as well, I mean, Apollo 13 and, and Twister and then Titanic, and he was doing – I haven't seen his television work, but I believe it was really good. I heard a really beautiful interview with him only recently on Mark Maron's podcast, WTF Pod, which I, I suspect a lot of people are aware of. And I know he just came across as a really regular guy who was very self, self-deprecating, very realistic, and was looking forward to doing a lot of other great work. So this death was unexpected, and, yeah, I'm, I'm qu- quite saddened by that. A big shout-out to Josh Nelson, ex-Plato's Cave host and, and founder, who I know was very fond of Bill Paxton as well. Um, well, you know, we'll, we'll salute him and... So I guess this will just keep happening, won't it? Stop, <laughs> what do you think he's stop gonna... dying. We only have so many bongs to pack. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's, it's sad when that, it, it's sad when it's that young and unexpected. Yeah. But um, I look, Bill Paxton is someone who I'll always think of very fondly. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R FM in Melbourne, Australia. 
Aquarius is a Brazilian-French film that premiered last year at the Cannes Film Festival. It stars the Brazilian-American actor Sonia Braga, who is perhaps best known for Kiss of the Spider Woman in 1985 and The Burning Season in 1994. She plays Clara, a retired writer with strong emotional ties to the beachside apartment where she has lived most of her life. This puts her into direct conflict with developers who are trying to buy her out so they can construct a new building. Soon, Clara is the only resident left in the apartment block and having to deal with escalating attempts from the developers to harass her into submission. Alex, you were really taken by this, I believe. I have a, I have a story for you all. I went on a journey with Aquarius. So I came to this film last year based on Philo's previous film, Neighbouring Sounds, from 2012, that I am not alone in, in championing as one of the best films of that year. Just an extraordinary film set in the same area. Um, focuses again on an apartment block, but instead of focusing just on one inhabitant, it focuses on a whole group of people who live in this apartment block. So this uh, Aquarius is kind of connected in in a couple of ways, I guess, indirectly with this extraordinary earlier film, uh, Neighbouring Sounds. So when I first saw this, this is going to sound like I'm going on a tangent here, but when I was at school, when I was in year eight, we I went to a Catholic school, we did The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe, and we all thought it was great. It was the first book that we we actually, in English, that we thought was good. And then we came to school and our teacher, Ms. Brown, Ms. Brown, I know who you are, pulled the word allegory on us and dropped the Aslan is Jesus bomb. And I'm still <laughs> angry about it. I'm still really, really angry about Actually, it. It's spoilers, like, Alex. So <laughs> <laughs> it's too soon. And I'm st- it's, it's been a couple of years and I'm still not pleased. I, I admire the... Uh, the intellectual rigor that went into that particular allegory. So when I saw Aquarius, see, I'm not, I'm not high. I'm not. I didn't go drinking <laughs> with Thomas. I am going somewhere. When I first saw Aquarius, I thought it was this amazing film about this, you know, Sonia Braga, this amazing screen presence, this strong woman fighting the man, and it was just, you know, she's she's battled breast cancer and she's got this family and this amazing personal history and this incredible record collection, and I just thought it was this wonderful film about this wonderful, wonderful strong woman. And then I w- watched it again recently with some more knowledge of the background of the film and the controversy surrounding it and it was very consciously made when it when it filmed at Cannes uh, the, the cast and crew all had protest signs and were very much engaged with the plight of the ex-president uh, Dilma Rousseff who was impeached um, and replaced in August 2016 by Michelle Temer as president. Now, we say impeached. Um, a lot of people, including a lot of quite uh, high-profile human rights groups and certainly the makers of this film, feel that it was a coup. They feel that she was kind of falsely accused of certain things that were kind of rigged from the inside to get her out and replaced with a much more pliable man. A very controversial historical moment that I just wasn't aware of when I first saw this film. It's the Aslan is Jesus moment for me. I, when I watched this film again recently, it, it, it was, I just lost the magic. I don't know why there was, it was, the allegory was just so obvious. Um, this idea of the rot in the building yeah, yeah. and the strong independent woman forced out of her rightful home by passive aggressive businessmen. It just felt really uh, Aslan is Jesus for me. And, and it just didn't have the, it didn't. It just stripped away a lot of the magic. It just—I didn't think the film looked that great. I thought there's no real reason to see this at the cinema. I just had—I I went from very extreme positions on this film. It's quite a journey, Alex. Yeah, the end. I'm finished. I'm almost relieved to hear you say that because I, I saw the film knowing I knew there was something political behind it, but I, I didn't look into it deliberately. And I saw the film with no knowledge of the allegory, 
and I felt a little bit cheated by it in the end. It's a long film. It's two hours and 20 minutes. And the last half hour, I just had this real growing sensation of, is that all you're reducing this to? Because you're right. It's this rich story about this strong woman dealing with issues to do with her her, her sexuality, where she is placed in society an amazing as, character. as an older woman, mm-hmm. as a woman who's been through intrusive surgery, all this interesting stuff. And then it ends up as a simple kind of the villains are out to get you film. And the ending felt like something out of a Scooby-Doo episode. This sort of, <laughs> all is revealed, the end. And the person I actually saw it with was furious. They were like, you're... I think that their words were, you've got to be kidding me. Um, so I, I was worried I was going to come in here as the villain, as somebody who felt very underwhelmed by this film, despite being quite invested in it at first. Yeah, well, Sonia Braga is a presence. I mean, she's in, you know, Kiss of the Spider Woman is one of the great films of that decade, I think, in large part due to her her performance. Cerise, I'll stop swearing. No, don't. Hiccuping. No. Uh, well, yeah, there's this uh, cancer of the body, cancer of the body politic thing I've seen play out in a... Uh, there was at least one film last year at MIF, which I actually had a lot more time for, but the uh, the allegory was perfectly blunt in that film too. It was a, a Serbian film. A Serbian I, movie. I, it wasn't a Don't Serbian. Don't call it a Serbian <laughs> film. Oh. Uh, a Good Wife, I think it was called. Um, it was. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it was... It was quite strong. It was definitely bitier than this. But then we're, we're asked to sympathise with somebody here whom the, the film actually goes out of its way to, to remind us actually how privileged she is. She herself reminds us how privileged she is by actually taking the film off on a little journey down the beach across a, a demarcation, which is a little sewage pipe. Um, well, not even a pipe, just a, a, a bit of out. Uh, Effluence and on the beach, and on the other side is where the poorer folk live. And then we see that she's prepared to go there and take people with her. But there's that clear distinction made between us and them, and she's us. And she lets them into her house. But we are reminded that a previous them robbed the family of their jewels once. And so, in in, in a way, to to see this film play that. These, bring up these class struggles only to uh, resolve things very much. Well, I don't want to spoil things either exactly, but I guess it's perhaps apparent just from the way we're all talking about this, how this might play out in the end. But it is disappointing. I, I, I know why whoever it was you saw this with Thomas was, sort of might have thrown their hands up in the air at the end of it and thought, oh, okay, we two and a half hours later and... Um, yeah, and that's it. Well, yeah, yeah I'm mm. kind of annoyed at myself. Like, I don't know how I miss the allegorical, even not knowing the details, but the allegorical vibe. Like, mm. just re-watching it, it's so clearly, oh, and I hate this phrase so much, but it so clearly stands for something. You know, it, it just felt like the kind of film that you would watch in high school, you know, because of its quote-unquote themes. Yeah, you know? well, like, we learn that the society is corrupt, and yet uh, you know, she learns of some... Uh, uh, information, some intelligence that could help her in her battle against people who are more corrupt than she is, let's say, at least ostensibly. But that, that all plays out in a way that's not very satisfactory ultimately either because um, it, just, it actually it just cancels itself out. And, yeah. uh, and I, I think I felt a bit uncomfortable with using her cancer and we see the huge impact it's had on her life mm-hmm. being a metaphor for something else, I thought. Yeah. I almost felt it was a bit disrespectful to people who have been through what her character has been through. And I think more broadly, kind of, you know, the the metaphorical, this allegorical pushiness of this film really dismisses the character Mm. and and that nuance that you point out, Cerise, you know, and the relationships that she has, her relationship with her housekeeper. Her long-time housekeeper. Yeah, like all of this stuff just sort of becomes Scooby-Doo. It just lacks all the subtlety and all the beauty. I mean, this film... 
it looks like a TV movie. It didn't really strike me as visually that interesting. It doesn't look nice, does Whereas it? Whereas Neighbouring Sounds, yeah. I mean, if you can see it on a big screen, do. Like, Neighbouring Sounds is just is magic. It's a gorgeous film. And oh, this film just, um, yeah, I'm really, I went, I, I can't remember the last film I went from really liking to finding something out and then having the exact opposite reaction, actually finding it quite distasteful. That's quite, yeah, because, I mean, you were um, the one who pushed for us yeah, to do yeah. this film, goddamn you. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly thought I was going to be the villain tonight by being no. underwhelmed by this film. But um, it, here's my really reductive statement about it. It's like the castle without the class politics or the humour. Uh, yeah, it's not got the humour. It does have the class <laughs> politics, but unsatisfactorily. Mm. It's, um, well, there's no underdog. It, like, yeah. like you said, like, I couldn't work yeah. out why are we on her side. Yeah. Yeah, She's yeah. so privileged. Yeah. And I actually started siding with the residents who were saying to her, leave, move No, out. like, who do you think you are? Like, that was yeah. exactly it. it like, was, you're and, preventing us from getting this payout. And then I was thinking, well, maybe that's got something to do with the controversy that it's, you know, that with this with this particular president and is it a coup or is it, you know, is it actually a genuine impeachment? And I thought, you know what? I shouldn't have to know that to be able to read the film. Like, you know, I mean, it should kind of stand on its own merits. And, my God, say what you will about The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, it stands on its... Aslan was awesome. It does. And, look, I think the sexual politics in this film, again, it was disappointing how... It was left hanging because there was a, there was a real attempt to look at you know the fact that she is being rejected by men her own age and she you know she obviously is craving some kind of attention and affection and I think the way that's resolved is not very satisfying no, I, either. I, I think it's pompous and I think it's overlong. Yeah, I think it's a film that's really got a very inflated sense of its own importance. And it has two Queen songs, two T two train spottings, one, and is not therefore the winner. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, well, that was the link. The, both Train Spotting and Aquarius have Queen songs in them. Yeah. Did Camera Person have a Queen song in it? <laughs> I, don't I don't quite remember. <laughs> that would be a bit Not of a different so song. So much, no. <laughs> uh, what a shame. But um, there you go. There are our thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Aquarius, see it with as little knowledge as possible and you might like it. <laughs> don't listen to the last 15 minutes and you'll love it. <laughs> oh, I feel bad because it is a small film that needs support. But, um, but yeah, well, we're all being honest. There we go. No one can ever accuse us of mincing our words. You've been listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R with Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. We discuss Camera Person and that is screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image courtesy of Madman Entertainment. T2 Train Spotting is on general release through Sony Pictures and Aquarius is screening at Cinema Nova courtesy of Rialto Distribution. Uh, that's it for us. We'll see you next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about The Family, the documentary The Family. We have locked that in for discussion next week. And we have um, Emma back as well, don't we? Emma will be yep. back so. next week, yeah. Mm. Uh, so you've got that to look forward to next week. But we'll just say it's good night from us for now. And keep listening to Triple R as local and or general with Jason Moore is up next. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.